Good morning. Um, like Chris said, my name is Kyle. I, I serve as the pastor of Community Life here, so it's great to be with you guys this morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. I'll, I'll give you guys some time to do that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. You can find one in the front foyer area or lobby area, and that's our gift to you. We, we deeply believe that one of the greatest gifts that we can give you is, is God's Word, and so we would love to do that for free. Um, as you're turning, I want to inform you um, that I have been having some car trouble, <clears throat> and uh, I know you guys all care, um, <laughs> but I've been having some car trouble, and in the last three weeks, I have taken my car in to the dealership three times. So if anyone here knows Andy Moore, uh, you can give me his phone number. Um, but <clears throat> just kidding. But car trouble is great. It, 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 is, it is just the worst, as we all know. It is uh, going in. Okay, here's the problem. Okay, no, it's not that problem. Oh, wow. Okay, great. It's, it's that problem. Oh, no, it's, it's this problem. Uh, but every, every other time I, I bring the car in, they do what's called a diagnostic work. Uh, so they plug plugs into the engine because now computers are more, or cars are more like computers, uh, and they can get a code. And they can ask, okay, what's going on? What's misfiring? What's not working? In the Christian life, there are some questions that we can ask ourselves that, if we're honest, can give us a diagnostic, can give us a picture of, of how we're doing. What are we believing? What are we functionally believing? We may say we propositionally believe the gospel, but if we ask certain questions, it, it, it may be that that may not be the case. Let me ask some brief questions. What is the single greatest and most imposing obstacle to your enjoyment of God? Do you regularly struggle to find energy and motivation to read your Bible on a regular basis? Would you say that joy and peace are, are frequent, frequent expressions of your spiritual experience with God? What's the primary reason that when you pray, you sometimes live in fear or anxiety that God either won't hear it, or if he does hear it, he won't answer it the way you want him to. Why do I ask those questions? Um, Sam Storms, who wrote some of those questions, says this, the single overriding and most debilitating factor that threatens to undermine everything in our Christian lives and in our relationship with God is the failure to understand, embrace, and enjoy the full and final forgiveness of our sins. I suppose there are other reasons for us, that for some of us, if we are not enjoying God or not as doing well in our relationship with God, that, that might be an explanation. But is it possible, and I maybe go so far as to say that some of us, even most of us, may live in the great fear and with a great lie that we are believing, that God has all of our sins in the forefront of his mind and stands ready to use them against us. Friends, Hebrews 10, 1 through 18 is going to give us a picture of the gospel. It's going to give us a picture of the work that Christ has done for us to forgive us of our sin, give us a new heart, and unite us with him. It is a glorious passage. But I want to ask us one question. What would it be like in our Christian lives if we really believed fully that our sins are fully and finally forgiven. How would that change your life? How would that change your prayer life? How would that change your relationship with God's word? How would that change and give you courage to be bold in your Christian witness, either in your family or in your place of work? How might God's 
great forgiveness in Christ really change our life and our heart. Hebrews is going to show how that's the case and how that's achieved in Christ. Let's take a look at God's word. Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. I'll pray. I'll say this is the word of the Lord. You, were, you can uh, repeat, thanks be to God. Let me read. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never be, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. God, thank you for Christ. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. God, thank you that um, as we sang that you lift us out of our despair and that you take our burdens as yours to bear. God, that is a truth that many of us, in fact, all of us, whether we know this or not, need to believe. And that God, by this final forgiveness, not only have you perfected us in Christ, but that we have access to you. We have an ability to draw near so close to you, so near to you, because of Jesus. God, help us to do that throughout the week. Lord, I pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would be with me as I, as I preach. Uh, God, draw people's attention to your word. Lord, I lastly know and we rightfully believe that you are sovereign and therefore no one is here by accident. And so, God, if those who are burdened, struggling, God, would you comfort them with your love? And Lord, if anyone is in here who is perhaps too comfortable for where they at when, in regards of where they stand in relation to, to you. God, would you humble them? Would you show them their great need for forgiveness in Christ? God, thank you for Hebrews, and thank you for just the resounding thing that we see that, Jesus, you are better. Help us to trust and to live by that. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. This is the word of the Lord.
You may be seated. Well, we're in chapter 10, 1 through 18. There's a, there's a lot here. Um, this, there's a lot here. Many sermons have been preached over this, uh, perhaps even, uh, maybe even just the first seven verses, uh, but we're going to kind of go through fast uh, the, the first half. But we're going to look at this sermon, we're going to look at this passage of Scripture and really understand it from three different angles. One, he, the author is going to lay out the imperfection of the law. That's what we're going to first look at. We're going to see the new heart that we receive in Christ. And then lastly, we're going to see that the pardon, we're going to see the pardon that he gives in Christ. So the imperfection of the law. If you've noticed, Hebrews is highly repetitive. Hebrews is making one big argument, and the argument is this, that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than our ability to conjure up our own morality, to earn God's favor. But Jesus has done what we could not do by coming and dying for us on the cross, rising, triumphing over sin and death, giving us the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is better than the law. And he was writing to Jewish or Hebrew people that were tempted to go back to the law under persecution, that were tempted to say, I've just started to believe in Jesus and I thought it was going well, but now all of a sudden there is this immense persecution. It just makes more sense to go to the law. And what the author is saying, no, hold fast, stand firm in Christ because Jesus is better. He is a better high priest. But we see, first, he says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. The author is wanting us to to see the imperfection of the law. It begs the question, but why couldn't the law make us clean? Why didn't, as verse four says, the the blood of bulls and goats take away sin? Kent Hughes gives us, uh, pastor and author and commentator, gives us some a peek into this, and he basically says that for two reasons, it was imperfect and that it could not take away sin fully and finally, and therefore it left the conscience stained from sin. So it couldn't take away sin. If you think about a Hebrew priest, when he would enter into the tabernacle, there were many things. He would enter in, he would see a lampstand, he would see the bread of presence, he would see, uh, when he would go beyond the second curtain, He would see the mercy seat in which he would sprinkle blood. There were many things within the tabernacle. And and Chris has has talked about this in the last couple of weeks about just the the intricacies of the tabernacle and the things that he would have to do. Always moving, always doing something, always cleansing, always offering. But what was there not in the tabernacle? A chair. There was not a chair for him to be seated because he was constantly on the move, constantly doing what a high priest should do. And this, when you contrast it to verse 12, makes it amazing. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The law could not take away sin fully and finally, but Jesus can, and Jesus did. Without bloodshed, there is no forgiveness of sin. We, see, we saw that in actually chapter nine, verse 22. And what he's saying there and here is that within the law, within the ceremonial law of atoning for sin, there was a bloody, gruesome depiction of the severity of sin. That sin is costly. 
that sin is not just, it's not just horizontal, but that sin is vertical. That the wages of sin is death, as Romans 6, 23 says. It was a picture that God demands justice for wrongdoing, but that, but that you will not suffer. An animal will suffer. An animal will die and his blood or their blood will be shed and a priest will mediate it. We can also discern by verse two and three, the repeated nature of the sacrifices show the inadequacy, inadequacies of the sacrifices. In other words, why would we keep doing them if they really could take away sin and pay for it in full, but they could not. But they pointed to the one who would. Lastly, because of this, the conscience was stained from sin. And here's the point that's unmistakable. If a sacrifice for sin was perfect, it could finally and forever cleanse the conscience. But it couldn't. The human heart still wrestled with guilt and condemnation. We see this in Psalm 51. David we know the story of David, some of you. Um, David was the king of Israel, but he sinned grievously. He sinned in two ways that the law, there, there was not a sacrifice. He sinned by murder and, adul- he sinned by murder and adultery, right? He, he sees Bathsheba bathing and he commits adultery with her when actually he should have been off at war and that she was a, a married woman and therefore he orders Uriah, her husband, to go to the front lines knowing that he will die. So David not only sins in that he commits adultery Bathsheba, but then he orders her husband to go to the front line and die. And he knows and is wrestling with the reality that the law cannot purge his conscience. And he says it in verse 16 and 17 of Psalm 51. You will not delight in a sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. David knew the law couldn't atone for his murder and adultery. He was, by mercy, relying on God to purge his heart. If you think about a shadow, the, as the law, as the author compares the law to, a shadow is not nothing. A shadow represents something. It's not its object in its entirety, but it is something. The law could atone for sin temporarily, but it was pointing to the one who would take away sin for all time and cleanse the conscience. So it can never make perfect those who draw near. We see that. Think about that. It can never, the law can never make perfect those who draw near. But Jesus can, and Jesus did for those who are in Christ. What does God desire if the law cannot make us perfect? He desire, desires a heart that loves and obeys perfectly which gets us into our great human problem, the human condition, the ultimate human problem, which is sin. Without the gospel, we simply cannot obey as God demands, and we do not desire as God requires. And therefore, as Ephesians 2, 1 says, that we are dead in our sin. The problem with the world is that we don't desire nor do the will of God. There is my will, and then there is God's will. And often, these are at war every day in our life. We, we know what we should do. We know what the law requires. We know what God requires, but we do not have the ability to do it perfectly. What causes someone to steal? What causes someone to commit adultery? What causes someone to commit murder? Is it just our circumstances? Is it people who said something who made me angry? No. 
problem was with the heart. It is the human heart. And the author knows this. And he's going to give us the remedy in verse 16. James tells us in James 4, 1 through 4, he says, What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. The author of James uses pretty stark language, but it's true nonetheless. The heart, the human heart outside of Christ is sick. We are desperately sick, as Jeremiah 17, 9 says. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It is so easy to point to circumstances, politics, family life, whatever is in our life, and say, this is my problem. The problem is horizontal. The problem or is vertical. God has not given me what I desired or not given me a great lot in life. But the Bible says, that's not your problem. In World War II, during the time of World War II, in the London newspaper, an article was written that just said this, what's the problem with the world? And there were many political activists and humanitarians that wrote in and said, we need better political systems. This was during the time of Hitler. So we need a better leader. We need someone like Churchill. Once we have him, we will be great. Or we need better humanitarian causes for the poor and the sick. Or we need to have a better view of being kind to one another. All options. But there was one person, G.K. Chesterton, who was a Christian author and and writer. And um, he wrote in and said, Dear author, to the answer your question, what is wrong with the world, comma, I am yours truly. See, he knew that in me, as Paul says in Romans 7, nothing good dwells. That outside of Christ, the heart is sick. Why is God not satisfied with either sacrifices or burnt offerings, as it says? Because God is about the internal, not just the external. God desires obedience, not simply externally, but from a heart that loves God internally. There were many people who tried and did very well in obeying externally, but their hearts were far away from him. The group of people in the Bible known as the Pharisees had memorized the entire Torah, the first five books of the law, by heart. And yet Jesus says, you honor me by your lips, yet your hearts are far away from me. In other words, we look at the external all the time and Jesus is constantly looking at the internal. Why are you obeying? Is it because you love me? Or is it because you want something? Or because you're using me? Jesus in Mark 7 made this clear. He talked, told his disciples that it's not something that someone puts in their mouth that defiles them, but what comes out of their mouth. And he's talking about the Pharisees and the disciples Peter doesn't understand. And he says, let me make it clear. In Mark 7, he says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, 
does not defile anyone. We are constantly saying my will in our hearts, but God is desiring for us to have hearts that say, like Jesus says, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He's looking for someone to say what Jesus says in verse seven. And our problem is that we are unable to do that on our own. The tension is that God demands something from us that we are incapable of doing on our own. A transformed heart that loves and delights in obedience to God. The one thing that we ought to do, we do not want to do. But what if the one thing that we ought to do could be the one thing that we now desire to do? That is what it means to be a Christian. Look at verses five. So because of the law could not take away sin, Jesus says this, and, and the author is drawing the reader to Psalm 40, verses four through six, that the pre-incarnate Christ has a conversation with God the Father. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The gospel is this, that Jesus came, had a conversation with God the Father and said, you have prepared a body for me, that I will come, I will live the life they could not live. I will obey the law perfectly in which they fail. I will die for sin on the cross. I will rise triumphantly, atoning for their sin, and then I will give the Holy Spirit to them. And friends, if you are in Christ, it is true of you. The new heart that God gives is a result of Jesus Christ coming and dying for your sin, which was the plan from the foundation of the world. Jesus did not come because it was God's, because God had to call an audible. Rather, it was from the foundation of the world that Jesus Christ would come and die for your sin. It was plan A for God. The new heart that God brings is quoted here in verse 16, if we want to skip ahead just a little bit. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Where God once wrote the law on stone and gave the Mosaic law, now he writes it on a believer's heart heart. That is a beautiful. This is Jeremiah 31, 34, but it's also said in Ezekiel 36, 26, where I will, he says, I will replace the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. If you think about stone or wood, it is dead. No feeling, right? Outside of Christ, that is our hearts, as Ephesians 2, 1 affirms. But in Christ, God replaces the heart of stone with a heart of flesh that now desires him. New longings, new wants, new conviction of sin, a new way of engaging the Bible, a new way of engaging Christian community. Now there is a pulse where we now desire God like we could not or did not before. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Friends, if you are a Christian in here, there's not been a, just a change in you. There's been a change of you. You are new. You are, by all terms, a walking miracle that God has done a work in you. You are a walking miracle. One of the best promises of the new covenant is actually what we're gonna see of God's progressive sanctification 
in our life. I want to draw your attention to verse 10, and we're going to read down to verse 14. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. Okay, then he says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Notice the difference between the Levitical priesthood and Jesus. He is seated. The Levitical priest was not, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. I don't have time to really get into this, but he's quoting Psalm 110, which is essentially saying that every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow before Jesus. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Friends, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What does that mean? Are you perfect? In one sense, in Christ, yes, you know, those of us who are married be like looking at our spouse saying, you sure, right? But in another sense, are you perfect? Well, of course not. How do we make sense of this? I want to draw our attention to a theological term called sanctification. What does that mean? It is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. I'll read that again. It's taken from the Westminster Catechism. The work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. Right? This is what theologians call the already but the not yet. So already we are those who, have, who are perfected. Right? So notice the change in tense. Verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected something in the past for all time. Those who are being being sanctified. Notice the verb change. Being sanctified. In other words, we can think think of it like this. We have been perfected in the past. It is accomplished and complete. It's true of you, Christian. By grace, that is true of you, struggling Christian. If you are in Christ, it is true of you. It's true of you. But we are also being sanctified in the present. We still are in need of daily sanctification. Therefore, we know that we are not yet free from total sin. We are being sanctified. We are growing in Christ's likeness. We are being conformed into the nature, character of Christ. We can think of it like this. The communion, we can think of it in terms of communion versus union. Union, what I mean by that is union with God is something that no bad day, no past or future sin can alter. If we are Christians, we are united to God by faith in Jesus. What God starts, he always finishes. Philippians 1.6, we see that. He who started a good work in you will what? See it to completion. That is good news for us as Christians. For Romans 6, 5, Paul says this, for we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. However, you say, but aren't I called to fight sin? Aren't I called to walk and and make right choices in my walk with Jesus? Yes, and this is where the, the nature of communion comes in. Our subjective communion with God does fluctuate. While I am never worried whether I am in Christ, united to him by faith, if I am a Christian, 
if I have received that new heart, I can have days where it is difficult to enjoy that reality. And disobedience and sin greatly affect my communion with Christ, but never my union with him. We see this in Galatians 6, 7 through 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Your choices matter. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I love this because this verse means that, friends, you have assurance that you are in Christ, that you are perfected and completed in the eyes of your heavenly Father. Not because you are perfect now, but precisely because you are not perfect now, but are being made holy. Because if you are being made holy. Friends, this is a great encouragement to us as Christians. Because what this means is that God is in a process of making you are not only sanctified, but you are being sanctified. You are not only holy in Christ positionally, but you are being made holy in this life progressively. And this is a good news because what this means is all of your trials, all of your persecutions, all of your experiences are working toward conformity to Christ. God has one aim for you and it is not necessarily primarily your happiness or your comfort or your security or your bank account. It is primarily your holiness. And listen, your parenting, which I'm a parent, and it is so, it is the greatest privilege in my life to be a parent, but it is often God's sharpest scalpel in my life. It's working for my and your holiness. Your suffering working for your holiness your cancer, your illness, your job, your marriage, your friendships. Yes, even the disappointing and hurtful ones are all working for your good. They are all making us, if we let them, more like Jesus. Friends, nothing is wasted in your Christian life. Nothing. And as believers, you have been sanctified, you are being sanctified And you will one day be fully sanctified when Jesus returns or we go with him in heaven fully in glory. God, friends, not only comes down, he goes to the Father and says, you have prepared a body for me. I will go. I will do what they cannot. I will obey the law fully, die for their sin, atone for their sin. And not only do that, but then he will give us a new heart where where we once were callous and dead. Now we finally want what God wants, and we are being made more into his image as we walk with Jesus in this life. But not only that, but look at verse 17 and 18. So 16 and 17, the author quotes the new covenant promise, right? That's what he means by he does away with the first and establishes the second. He's doing away with the Mosaic covenant, and he's establishing the covenant of grace in Christ. But he says this, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's finished, friends. The pardon that he gives changes our life. He chooses not to include your sins in his assessment of you in Christ. God does not gain knowledge. He doesn't 
lose knowledge, right? God is all-knowing. He doesn't have mental lapses, as in I forgot to set my alarm for, uh, I meant to send it for 7 a.m., but I sent it for 7 p.m. Have anyone else been there? Just me? Um, He doesn't have those kind of mental lapses. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. He's holy. He's perfect. What is he saying here? He says that I choose not to count your sins against you and that I don't involve them in my relationship with you. Friends, that is beautiful. Friends, if we let that, that will change our life. Charles Spurgeon says this, but God, when he forgives, he forgets too. That is to say, he will make no difference in his future dealings with us on account of our past sins. He will treat his children as though they had always been obedient children and had never revolted Man, that is a promise. It's not that God doesn't care about obedience all of a sudden. No, he does. Absolutely he does. In fact, Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. The difference is now we're finally free to obey rightly. That now his burdens, or sorry, his commandments are not a burden. First John 5, 3 says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome, friends. Christians obey not out of guilt, but friends, Christians obey because their guilt is taken away. Christians obey not out of guilt, but because their guilt is taken away. This is what separates Christianity from any other worldview, friends, any other religion. Religion or the law says you must obey. You got to do it. You got to do this and do that if you want to be a good Muslim, a good Buddhist, or a good person. But the gospel says you will obey. What's the difference? A whole lot. One is a demand put on you. The other is a byproduct of something new inside of you. One is a burden put on you. It's an atlas stone that you put on your back and you carry up. I got to do this. I must do this. I must earn But the other is a weight lifted, a heart finally set free to obey what God has created us to obey. The gospel is like apples growing on an apple tree. It's only natural for someone to fight sin and obey who's been forgiven. Something that is alive bears fruit. For the Christian, obedience to God doesn't give life. It is an index of life. It comes from a heart, that a new heart that we have in Christ Apples don't give an apple tree life. They are an index of life that is already there. Think of it this way. We don't obey to get a changed heart, but rather from a changed heart. One is crowbarring our desires to get something. The other is totally new desires from a heart that sees something. Sees what? Sees the gospel. Sees the cross of Christ. Sees Jesus who said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Friends, That is what the gospel is, that we trust in him who said it is my food to do your will, trusting in Jesus. And if we're a Christian here, God is committed to our sanctification. So based on this text, what is an application that we can make? We see that in Christ we are forgiven, that God chooses to remember our sins and our lawless deeds no more. When I was studying this, I asked, just asked myself the question, how am I doing at forgiving people? How are we doing? If God is moving us towards holiness, am I becoming a more gentle person? Am, am I becoming a more loving person? Is the tendency to hold a record of wrongs against someone, is that, is that going away or is that, am I fighting that? 
Am I finding it based on the fact that I am incredibly forgiven? To, am, is it becoming easier and more of a tendency to be, to be generous with forgiveness? You know, there's a tendency for us to be saved by grace, but to have a record-keeping heart. I, it, there's kind of a standoffishness that can happen where I know I need to forgive that person, but at the end of the day, I know that they've wronged me and I, I, can, I keep a record. I, I'm writing this down. And, and in other words, where I'm becoming less and less trusting. But the gospel is totally different. God does not relate with us on that way. In fact, Psalm 133-4 says, if you should keep a record of wrongs, who could stand? But with you, there is what? Forgiveness that you may be feared. Friends, how many times should we forgive our neighbor? The, the disciples asked Jesus, seven times seven? Jesus says, no, 70 times seven, an unlimited amount. C.S. Lewis says, he doesn't say that we are to forgive other people's sins provided they are not too frightful or provided they are extenuating circumstances or anything of that sort. We are to forgive them all, however spiteful, however mean, however often they are repeated. If we don't, we shall be forgiven none of our own. Friends, we forgive because we have been forgiven of such a debt. And we who are saved by grace should not then in turn relate with each other and even those outside of the Christian faith with the law. If you're not a Christian in here, let me, let me ask you one question. How might you, you be forgiven? See, the Bible implies that everybody needs forgiveness. It is assumed that we, we need forgiveness. How will you be forgiven? I have one recurring nightmare in life, and it's this. I enter in to the, a, a final classroom where I'm about to take a final, and I forgot about the class. It is horrible. And I wake up and I'm like, oh my gosh, right? Mark Twain had a similar, not a similar, but a reoccurring nightmare. He was an atheist. He hated God. He hated the Bible. But he had one nightmare that continued, a gigantic Bible that was coming closer and closer and closer to him. And he said, that dream showed me that, that the Bible convicts me and that my own conscience convicts me. Friends, I ask us, if you are not a Christian here, what will you do when we stand before a holy God and we know we need forgiveness? We can either crowbar, crowbar our desires to the right ones, start things we don't really want to do, and stop things we really, if we're honest, we really like doing, which won't work, or we can surrender to the heart surgeon and let Jesus do heart surgery, where he writes his law on our hearts and on our minds. Grace or merit, law or gospel, Jesus' life or your life? Do you desire to love God as you know you should and obey him as you know you ought, but you find it impossible? Then I urge you, come to the surgeon and let him work. Come to Jesus. Only he can renovate the human heart. Let me end this, end with this. Siddhartha Gautama, or Buddha, his final words before he died were this, strive without ceasing. Do it, earn it, you must but what were Jesus' final three words? It is finished. There's a world of difference there. Give me Jesus all day. Let's pray. God, we thank you that it is finished. Lord, that you have accomplished it. God, not only that you have said, um, you have prepared a body for me, Lord, that you from the foundation of the world have come 
to do what we cannot, but that God, you give us a new heart and you have pardoned our sin and you no longer bring that into our relationship with you because you have fully and finally paid for it. Thank you for Jesus. God, I pray that this would lead those who are not in Christ closer to you and to you fully and finally. God, we pray for those who are sick and hurting in this gathering, Lord, that you would continue to minister to them and to heal them. And God, Lord, that we would then live, that we would live out of this gospel depth for us, out of this great love that you have done in Christ. Help us to love you and to obey you more from a heart of thankfulness. We ask all of this in Jesus. Amen.